0: Welcome to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. As much as your health and well-being are important, so is the health and well-being of your pet. Join us today as we break down some of the top treatment and wellness programs that you need to know about in order to help your pet live a fulfilling and healthy life. And now, here's your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras.
1: Welcome to Healthy Tales, where we discuss current animal-related news, interview experts in specific areas of veterinary medicine, and discuss product information for pet owners in our Product of the Week segment. I'm your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, and with me today are my three amazing co-hosts, Dr. Elaine McCarthy, veterinary technician Tim Hayes, and our newest addition, Dr. Kyle Morano. Thanks for joining me, guys. Good Good morning. Good morning. We have a great show for you today. I'll be interviewing Dr. Alexa Delon, and we'll be discussing everything fish. Later, I'll discuss a product that traveling pet owners should have and use every time they take their dogs along with them. I really want to take this time to thank our incredible listeners and for all your amazing support. Please reach out to us. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. If you have any comments, suggestions, questions, or topic ideas, please reach out to us. We love your feedback. You are welcome and encouraged to email me anytime at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. And now let's get to the news. It's time for a closer wolf. Seth Meyers, any guy. anybody guys closer look. No? All right. All right. I tried, guys. All right. All right, Elaine. All right. What news do you have for us today?
2: Well, the, today I have something. It's a horror story is really the only way to describe this. Um, it's really every pet owner's worst nightmare. Um, It involves an adorable Pomeranian and a quarantine haircut. Uh, We thought that cutting our spouse's hair during quarantine was our biggest problem, but we were wrong. I'm not going to say it's the worst part of quarantine, but but it's pretty bad. (laughs) This poor Pomeranian in the before picture just had luxurious fluffy orange and cream hair. And then you see the next photo and it it just looks I don't I honestly don't even know how to describe it. It's like it's like a stuffed animal, but not not like your cute brand new off the shelf stuffed animal. It's like the kind that like your 5-year-old's been dragging in the mud. You've had to throw it in the washer like 1 to 2 dozen times.
1: A lot of experience with that. Yeah, Absolutely. Like, yeah, I
2: exactly. <laughs> <laughs> And if it were sitting staring at you in the corner of the room, it'd be like what it was in your nightmares. Uh, it's really quite alarming what, but what one bad haircut can do to a dog. Uh, thank God the uh, groomers are are opening up again. Um, we really should just be letting the professionals do it. And, and yeah. to be clear, and by professionals, I don't mean veterinarians. They yeah. are not professional groomers. <laughs> for the love of God. <laughs> <laughs> we only do it if the dog or cat cannot be groomed elsewhere. Absolutely. <laughs> people and that actually can do it.
1: Absolutely. Uh, Again, I, I saw that. Never in my life uh, have I ever really realized how important groomers are until this pandemic. Dogs are coming in so mangy and oh, yeah. so matted, and so with so much matted hair, which is causing skin issues because these skin, this is, the skin just can't breathe, all right? And so now we're seeing basically an epidemic of dog lacerations because for some reason, all clients still want to use scissors to cut their dog's hair. (laughs) I have no idea why. Oh, it
2: keeps us in business.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it does. I'm begging you. People, please get clippers. I know that clippers, you know, can cause some irritation, okay? Um, it, 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 it's not fun, all right? But almost never, clippers never require stitches, okay? And never require owners to basically get a whole new rug, okay, from the massacre, that, which is caused by scissors. So, all right, yes. Uh, like I saw that and I was like, oh, my goodness, that was, that was horrifying. But again, Indeed. unfortunately, we see that with these dogs.
3: All right, Kyle. The, the emotional, uh, the emotional strain on that dog in the second picture. The first picture, oh, that right. dog is the weasel. It's the
2: happiest. <laughs> yeah,
3: I mean he's got his paws crossed at first, and then it's just ah, oh, it is it is despair on that dog's face. It really is.
2: Yeah, I saw
4: people in the comments comparing it to like a, a bunny, and I, and I get that. But am I <laughs> the only one seeing like
1: llama or alpaca
4: when I look at <laughs> that? It, I'm many llama vibes.
2: I could
1: see that. I'm definitely seeing llama. <laughs> All right, Kyle. What do you got for us today?
3: Well, uh, actually, something I'm pretty happy—pretty happy to read. Um, the part of transportation, everybody um, in the airline business, is trying to get um, certifications and a little bit more consistency on um, service animals, and I think this is really, really good. Um, so, in in the past. Uh, Airlines have been have been required to allow service dogs on on board, and that I think has really spilled over into a lot of different areas where we're going from service dogs to then emotional support dogs. Then then it just really gets um, can get out of hand. Uh, this article talks about people bringing peacocks, iguanas, uh, snakes, and all um, all under the uh, statement of as far as emotional support animals and. I think getting better regulation on this is going to be really important and that's what the Department of Transportation and everybody has um, started to move toward. And I think the biggest key to this is going to be um, really defining service animals. And I think that's really, really the best way to go where that is an, an animal specifically they're going to go for a dog that is specifically trained to help with, um, perform a task with the benefit of a person with a disability. And I think that's really, really good because that just uh, defines everything well. It puts the airlines in a good situation. It puts people who need, who need these dogs who have been trained for that in a good situation and may start to weed out the people who are, um, you know, but unfortunately with everything, we've got people that are going to try to take advantage of this. Um, and, and I think so that's a really good step in the right direction.
1: Again, I totally agree. You know, first and foremost, the biggest thing I want to say is I love service dogs. I love what they do, I lo- again, how they can make such a huge impact on people's lives and help, again, just so many people, people with, you know, blindness, autism, seizures, anxiety, seizures, you know, sensory disorders, and more. I do get a little concerned that people take advantage of the term service dog. I've come across a lot of people who call their dogs service dogs, but they are, again, not well-behaved, and, they, and I can't imagine them like, attempting public transportation. Again, let's keep in mind All dogs are not created equal, all right. And if they have, if they are going to travel on a plane, there should be a higher standard for a type of training certification. It's great, again, it's it's great if dog is a comforting, um, you know, comforting to people. But if again, if it is barking, if it's fearful, if it's not well behaved, then they shouldn't. I I just don't feel that they should be there, okay, like in a very close confined space. Also, it may, you know, be good around the owner, but it may change when other people are around or when they're in a stressful situation, okay? And so I think there should be a standard made so dogs meet a criteria in order to call themselves service dogs. Again, I'm a fan of a lot of these programs that only basically a certain percentage of these dogs ever make it through the training program, all right? As um, as amazing as some owners are, okay? And even though, again, I know that they love their dogs. Not all dogs, again, are meant to be service dogs, all right? I really feel it's only a very small percentage of them. Like again, I, I, it's hard because I, I like to equate it to, all right, I know a lot of parents want their kids to you know, be high school, college, or even professional athletes. Okay. And as much as we practice with their children, okay, not all of them will make the team or become, you know, these great athletes. All right. It's just, we can't force them to do something that they're not. And so again, I think all dogs are amazing. Pets are amazing. I love every single one of them. I just want to make sure owners know that there's, again, there definitely should be a certain crier. The dogs should have a certain temperament and they should be able to be <clears throat> Has again a rigorous certification in order to really meet that um, service dog standard. So I'm hoping they come up with better standards. So I love that article, Kyle. I, I, I agree.
3: Yeah, Mon. I think that the, that's great. And, and just um, if people want more information, I, what I found was the AKC Good Citizen Certification. So even that's just a starting point to figure out. Okay, here is they put a, the dogs in some degree of stressful situations, and those are some good standards that they can start with. Um, if people want more information as far as what to expect. And then just remembering, you know, I think sometimes we forget dogs, they're wild animals at heart <laughs> yeah, and, yes. and we have such high expectations because dogs are great and we've yeah. trained a lot of things out of them. Um, but at heart, man, they are, they are wild animals and they've got that evolutionary drive in front of them and fear can do a lot of different things to
4: these guys in these stressful situations.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely.
4: All right, Tim. Contro- controversial opinion. Oh, no, yes. Emotional support tigers.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Tigers for (laughs) all.
4: But, no, uh, in all seriousness, I do think we need more regulation. I do, you know, think there needs to be lines drawn between an actually trained emotional, uh, you know, a service animal versus emotional support animals. But I do think there are people who genuinely uh, gain some, some good from an emotional support animal, people with, you know, high anxiety or depression issues. Um, and I don't necessarily want to see us take too heavy-handed a, a response to this. I, I think maybe yeah, let's have an emotional support animal be a part of a, a prescription by a, by a medical health professional. You know, by a psychiatrist, something. You know, get get some regulation in so we don't have people just walking into an airport with a. Peacock, which is, I think we can all agree, ridiculous, but, um, (laughs) you know, if somebody benefits from having a ferret that's not causing any issues and it's it's helping them out, it's not affecting other, you know, uh, people... I, I do want a world where that person still has that option on some level in some way. Fair, it might be a bad example on an airplane because of the, the scent glands. Scent <laughs> glands. You know, <laughs> I was just gonna bring that yeah, up. To I was going to yeah, bring that yeah, up. <laughs> but it, it, you know, it, I, I just don't want to see it go too too crazy. This specifically mentions dogs. That you know, cats could certainly you know be fine. You know, the, cats of a certain temperament can certainly be fine on an airplane. Um, so I, I just don't want to to get too heavy handed with the regulation. I, I suppose.
2: Yeah, there definitely does need to be some regulation though. I feel like there are people that take advantage of it and then oh, yeah. you start to get ridiculous animals on board and they are in a stressful environment and it, then it's not even good for the animal at that point. You need sure. an emotional support animal for the emotion, emotional support animal <laughs> at that point. And then you just have a full of animals. Uh, but yeah, I feel like they definitely need regulations because it, it's not helping the overall people when now they're going to have to, regulate even more so than they would have in their original aspect of it because people are, are going crazy with it.
1: Excellent. Absolutely. I mean, again, we have to also think about the animal as well. And so, yeah, I mean, again, wasn't even thinking about that. That's perfect though. You're exactly right. So <clears throat> good deal guys. All right, Tim, what do you got for us, brother? Uh, So it's been a little
4: overshadowed by the fact that, our entire country is literally on fire right now, but if you think back to last week, you'll remember there was a lot of talk about us being in the middle of a, a global pandemic.
2: Yeah, when did that happen?
4: <laughs> yeah, um, and so as a result, a lot of uh, companies have kind of had to come up with uh, some clever ways to change how they're running their businesses in order to keep their clients safe and to keep their employees safe. And uh, Stonehouse Urban Winery in Maryland has come up with a, a sort of an interesting one. They are now offering curbside service courtesy of a dog named Soda and what they did was they went out and they got uh, essentially a saddle bag for soda that fits two large wine bottles and when you order your wine, you, you, you go to the outside of this place and, and soda brings out your wine to you. Um, first of all as a white person allow me to say this is the whitest thing i've ever seen (laughs) people do just unbelievable um soda is also the least classy name that we could possibly have come up with for the world's first dog (laughs) Smollier. um and i get that was his name beforehand but change the name a a working name maybe yeah (laughs) you know something a stage name absolutely um I do think, though, that this is really nice for the patrons and for Soda, because if you watch the video, you, you can see that Soda really does genuinely seem to enjoy being around people. He's just one of those dogs. And so it, it's it's nice to see. And I do think it's genius, too. Like, I don't drink wine, but I would I would go there just to see this. I would buy some wine just to have Soda bring it out to me. Um, and then incidentally, this kind of got me thinking because of the, the idea of a, a dog with alcohol strapped to it has kind of existed in in the social consciousness for a while. Um, St. Bernard's are often depicted with barrels around their neck. And the idea being that at some point they were trained to bring whiskey or rum to to stranded travelers to to help them. And when you say that out loud, it sounds ridiculous because I get – Men used to be a little manlier than I am, but I don't think there's any time in history where a guy was dying in the Alps and genuinely would have, his life would have been saved with rum. I just don't think I mean, if, if a dog is bringing something to you, I don't think you want it to be rum. Um, and so I looked into this and it turns out it is nonsense actually that whole idea of the, the St. Bernard never happened. Uh, it is the the flight of fancy of a British artist from 1820. Uh, he just decided to paint that scene for some reason and it kind of just wormed its way into our consciousness is like oh yeah no that, that used to happen all the time. Um, So I think it's interesting. It kind of makes soda all that more impressive because it took 200 years and it's a boxer instead of a a St. Bernard, but we finally made that dream a reality.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. I love that we're putting dogs to work like this. Okay. Again, it is, is, I agree too. It was a very adorable video. It's very cute to see this dog going out there. Uh, Again, again, they're, they're learning to be social, you know, engaging. Uh, we are enriching their environment with both physical and mental stimulation. And again, they're not bored. And so they're being very social. And uh, and then they are training them to do something, which is, again, I think it's totally awesome. However, I, I asked. my only concern when I saw this was that um, how many dogs are able to like check IDs? And so <laughs> I'm like, that can get a little dicey. I mean, kids I mean, kids are very clever. And, and kids and I, again, I could can, I can definitely think, some would take advantage of this since people need to be twenty-one years old, okay? This is a little concerning because we were putting dogs in like a little bit of a compromising situation. It's great, it's creative, it's a useful idea. We just need to be careful when we're, you know, setting dogs up for situations like this. You know So
4: you think there's just like a group of teenagers with like milk bones off
1: to the side kind <laughs> of to, to divert? <laughs> Two, I think a lot of teens are again, as clever as you. All right, to use such a trick. <laughs> and again, I think that dad would take a few milk bones for some wine. I, oh, I, that's absolutely. just me. I think they would.
0: <laughs> my <laughs> biggest issue with it...
1: by the way, if
3: they're gonna, you know, when I was when I was sixteen, I'm looking for natty light. These guys
4: are looking for glass wine. <laughs> so it's COVID though. You take what you can get, right? <laughs> now. It,
1: yeah, these teens have a sophisticated palate. I'm assuming. Okay, I don't know. All right, but they might. All right. <laughs>
2: Yeah, my biggest issue is that he can only hold two wine bottles. (laughs) You need more than that.
4: (laughs) So you want like a team of sled dogs.
2: Oh, for sure. And then their sled has to also be carrying cases of wine. All
1: right, guys, so... Um, How we prepare uh, our dogs to be left alone, a home alone, um, is a New York Times article by Jen Miller, where she discusses how dogs are extremely social creatures. And again, and that's why, again, we love them, all right? And so again, trying to prepare our dogs for when we're going back, okay, to work. um, Thanks to shelter in place rules, right? They have been, they've been used, even used to us for being home for so long our dogs have been Um, but now we're going to be you know heading back pretty soon here uh, and we benefit from uh, and then there's a lot of things that we can benefit from this article in in what she talks about Um, the author goes into how to start preparing your pets for you know transitioning them for you and leaving more all right by giving them treats leaving your dog in a safe space making new plans for entertaining your dog and so but basically the author is assuming um, that all dogs are going to be have basically developed separation anxiety and that and that's you know basically how we need to approach the matter Again, separation anxiety happens when dogs are super attached to their owners and get stressed when left alone. Uh, again, I'm not sure, all right, that we're going to be obviously seeing this uh, so much. And this article, uh, again, again, this article has great ideas, but I just don't know that the basically the next epidemic, all right, is going to be, you know, separation anxiety in our dogs. All right, again, I do like this article. I do think it's very cute and things that we can prepare um, and make the transition a little bit easier for our pets, uh, but I don't think that we need to be, um, again, gets extremely scared that our dogs are going to be, you know, when we start leaving, they're going to start tearing the whole house apart after, after we leave because of this uh, pandemic. But again, it does give some, some really good tips. And so uh, I think she does a good job and, and her heart's in the right place.
2: Yeah. My concern is, especially with puppies and new dogs that, you know, so many people are adopting during quarantine is that these dogs think that the normal is that the owners are home all the time. Their whole lives are the owner all the time. So whenever a new puppy comes in for an appointment, I always tell them, you know, start tr- taking time away from the puppy so that it doesn't get used to you there 24 seven, make sure it's going in the crate a couple times during the day, make sure that you're leaving it in the house by itself. Uh, Cause I do think it it's it is is gonna be concerning for those dogs that are not used to it at all at this point where they've literally been around their people 24 seven, it's gonna be an adjustment for for those dogs especially
1: great point I mean again yeah, because there has been a significant number of adoptions people have been clearing these shelters and we've had a lot of puppies so this is like basically you're absolutely right the only life that they've actually known um, you know for this, this pandemic for this, this period of time so you're absolutely right alright thanks guys for keeping us up to date in the news everyone when we come back we'll be discussing um, with the fun and awe inspiring Dr. Alexa DeLon and learning all we can in about 30 minutes about everything fish stick around
0: The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The Vetpros Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The VetPro's Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You are tuned in to Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales.
1: Welcome back to Healthy Tales. Our world's population is growing every minute. And unfortunately, with more people comes more pressure on our oceans. People around the world rely on the oceans for food, income, and recreation. 10% of the world's population relies on fisheries to making a living. Aquaculture is one way people are providing fish for food without overfishing. Around the world, more and more plastic is being found in our oceans. Recently, there has been a big push for people to reduce single-use plastic to help decrease the amount of plastic that ends up in our ocean. Every little change people make can add up to make a big impact on our oceans and our fish health. People can choose sustainable fish to eat, say no to straws and other single-use plastics, and participate in beach cleanups. Fish, big and small, contribute to the overall health of an ecosystem. They provide food source for other animals, they help distribute nutrients, and they provide nutrition for people. Fish live in all types of water, including freshwater, salt water, and breakish water, a mix of salt and fresh water. Aquariums provide a way for people to see fish up close and learn about their importance and unique characteristics. As more people lean toward aquaculture as a food source and as more people visit aquariums and keep fish as pets, it's important that they are raised in optimal environments to keep them healthy and to produce the best product possible. We don't want them stressed or overcrowded and we don't want them exposed to infectious disease. The best person to talk to about this issue is the one and only Dr. Alexa Delon. Dr. Delon earned a doctor of veterinary medical degree and certificates in aquatic animal medicine and international medicine from the University of Florida in 2010. Following veterinary school, she completed a one-year small animal rotating internship in a private practice. In 2011, she began working as a veterinarian at the Georgia Aquarium. During her tenure at the Georgia Aquarium, she was a co-leader of the student externship program, taught classes in laboratories in the Aquavet Three program, and co-taught workshops on elasma branch medicine and diagnostics. Dr. Delon is a co-founder for the Association of Zoo and Aquariums, Saving Animals from Extinction, Sharks and Rays Blood Project. She is an active member of the American Veterinary Medical Association, the Association of Zoo Veterinarians, and the International Association of Aquatic Animal Medicine. Dr. DeLon has published several peer-reviewed manuscripts and has contributed to books and chapters on aquatic animal medicine. She has presented research findings and given didactic lectures at national and international veterinary conferences. Dr. DeLon is currently the vice president of veterinary services at Mississippi Aquarium, where she is creating the veterinary program for the Mississippi Aquarium, which is scheduled to open later this year. All right. Dr. Delon, first and foremost, Gretsch, all right? That's what we would call her, all right, in vet school. <laughs> <laughs> Gretsch, I mean, uh, Tammy, but Gretsch says hi, all right? And she says she loves you, all right? Uh, Alexa. You have, such a, have had such a whirlwind career, all right? You, you started a master's program, all right, that I know had a little bit of a huge hiccup, okay? Uh, so you decided to go to vet school, where you became, again, a second mom to my baby twin boys, all right? You hosted legendary Halloween parties. You befriended a car pooping uh, neighborhood peacock, all right? And you have done, how have you done all this, Alexa, all right? <laughs> welcome, Welcome to the show, Alexa, all right? <laughs>
5: That's, I don't think I've ever had a better inter- introduction than this. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's what you get here. All right. I know you, I know you grew up in Kansas. All right? Uh, And right. You're a Jayhawk. I know. All right. We don't hold that against you. Um, but, you know, what did you focus on in undergrad?
5: So in undergraduate, well, let me back up. When I was eight years old, I saw a dolphin for the first time. And from that point on, I was destined, I was determined to become a marine biologist. I had the fire lit and I couldn't be dissuaded. So I um, I wrote every little report on something about the ocean. So then, you know, as you mentioned, I am from Kansas and there aren't a lot of oceans around. <laughs> but when I got to see the ocean for the first time, I went to California and um, I fell in love even more. So I just was determined to become a marine biologist, but I did get a lot of scholarships to go to Kansas. So mm-hmm. I went there and I studied um, biology. And believe it or not, there was a marine biologist working there. She studied deep ocean um, animals and went on submarines. And I got a job entering data into spreadsheets for her, and I was oh. super happy
1: about it. That was amazing.
5: <laughs> <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then I also studied Spanish because. Um, I just wanted to learn a foreign language, and I had studied it in high school, so I wanted to keep learning. And um, so I graduated from KU, and every single summer I was, well, every single summer before I graduated, I went and tried to get experience in marine biology because I knew I wanted to pursue um, a master's degree in marine biology and then a PhD. So I graduated and I got accepted to Florida Atlantic University in Florida, moved there, started studying sea turtles, and I was beyond excited to be able to live that dream. And then I got some bad luck, and it was the year three hurricanes hit pretty much the same spot in Florida, and they hit right over my research site. (laughs) So so it destroyed the research, research site. The turtles left, and after trying a few other projects, my advisor said, I don't know why, but you just have extremely bad luck, and maybe you should reconsider. (laughs) Oh,
1: my gosh. (laughs) And that's, that's where vet school came in?
5: That's Yeah, that's when I was like, what in the world? I mean, since I was eight years old, I've wanted to do this, and I was crushed. But I was thinking, what could I possibly do to still stay in marine biology, but change courses a little bit because this is clearly not working out and i decided to become an aquatic animal vet a little bit a little bit naive because i didn't know all that was involved (laughs)
1: So, so tell me about your vet school experience then, because all right, so you had this huge world where to change and then you have to go uh, where you have a, basically you have a narrow focus, right? I mean, you really had the narrow focus. That's not narrow, the ocean's huge and there's so many diversity in, in, in species, but, um, but now you're going into the vet school where again, it is really kind of cats and dogs and horses, you know? <laughs> so yeah. what, was, you know, what was your experience like?
5: <laughs> As you know, uh, everyone has to study the same thing. It doesn't yeah. matter what you yeah. like. You have to learn about everything. And I think the reason I probably got into vet school is because my path was so completely different than every other person. I mean, nobody had nobody. that sort of story. So, um, nobody did. <laughs> yeah. but I was, um, luckily I did get accepted to UF cause that's where I wanted to go. And yeah. cause they'd have an aquatic certificate program that I knew about. So, I just, you know, I attended classes just like you, with you, fought hard to get through them. <laughs> um, we studied so much. One time I actually pulled a muscle in my neck, if you remember that.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Was it from holding Thomas or Matisse maybe for so long <laughs> while we were studying? Those are my two children that she uh, she helped raise.
5: <laughs> I love those babies. So um, we yeah, we studied all the same things, but then uh, Florida offered a lot of different classes that other schools didn't offer, and so I was able to take classes to learn about fish, to learn about marine mammals, and that's when I got real excited because it was learning something completely different than uh, dog and cat medicine or large animal medicine, but it was it was what I wanted to do. However, I will say it was super important for me to learn dog and cat and large animal medicine because since the area of aquatic animal medicine is relatively new compared to the other areas of veterinary medicine, we extrapolate so much information from small and large animal medicine to treat our aquatic animals. So it was really good to have a solid foundation in that. And then you know I just had to fight through, I had to learn how to handle a horse and had to palpate those cows. But (laughs) at the time, it was very stressful and I cried a lot, (laughs) but we also had a lot of fun. And now 10 years later, I very much miss like having study groups and
1: Yeah, I I can't believe we just had our ten year uh uh at whatever reunion kind of thing. It doesn't, <laughs> it, it is it is crazy for me. So again, it, it's again. It sounds like then you did have quite a bit of though scuba or not scuba, but aquatic experience. Like uh, again, because I'm assuming you love to scuba dive and all those type of things. Um, yeah. And those have been some of your favorite things and your experiences um, to have an aquatic experience. Um, oh, I
5: mean, yeah, yeah. When I learned. I don't remember learning about when scuba diving was a possibility, but when I did learn about the fact that you could go actually under the surface of the water and scuba dive and spend a lot of time with all those ocean creatures swimming all around you, I was like, yes, this is for me. I got certified when I was 15 and, um, and it was amazing. It was like, I couldn't believe that there was an entire world under the surface of the water that nobody got to see unless they were scuba diving. It was incredible. And um, yeah, for my master's research, I was using scuba and um, diving to get sea turtles. And and scuba diving is one of the things before I had children that I did for fun. (laughs) (laughs) Living in Florida, I got to, in South Florida, I could go like on the beach dive every single weekend if I wanted to, so it was awesome.
1: Oh, that's Hello. awesome. <laughs> and so, uh, so again, you go from vet school, and I know we had this kind of little, little internship again, that we actually did together. Okay. Oh, it's such a fun time. <laughs> okay? that, oh, that fun internship where you just do cats and dogs and emergencies all the time. All right. And then though, um, from there, you actually, is that, do you go directly to do your residency at the Georgia Aquarium at that point in time?
5: So direct, yeah, I, directly from small animal internship, I got an offer for an internship at the Georgia
1: Aquarium. Oh, you did so, another internship. At yeah.
5: A- so I was super excited to go there because um, if anyone's ever visited there, it's it's very large. It's beautiful. You can see animals like whale sharks, manta rays, beluga whales that you just don't have the opportunity to see in many places. So I got offered an internship there, and then about halfway through the first year, they offered to extend me, and then kind of each year, they offered to give me a promotion. (laughs) So I took it, obviously, (laughs) and got to grab the opportunity when you have it. And I eventually ended up uh, being promoted to senior associate veterinarian um, a few, like I don't remember the year, but I was there for a total of eight years and um, did a lot of really cool things, worked on a lot of really awesome animals. And I learned a lot because, you know, I was there for eight years and I started out as a new grad and ended eight years later.
1: (laughs) You met the love of your life there too, correct? Is that where you guys met?
5: Yes, he was, um, (laughs) he was a tour guide. (laughs) Nice. I got asked to give a. Uh, they have a lot of school groups that go through, and I got asked to give a talk to a group of women who were pre-med, pre-vet, pre-healthcare. Basically, they were all um, in college, and they asked if I could speak to them about how I got into my current, into my position there. And he was one of the tour guides, and afterwards he came and introduced himself to me. And a few months later we started dating, and then. <laughs> Now and I'm now you,
1: here. <laughs> <laughs> love it. Uh, the Georgia Aquarium, I love it. But now you've kind of moved on to a new chapter uh, now. all right, You moved on from the Georgia Aquarium. all right. Uh, and so can you kind of tell us what this past year all right, and this new position is like? Yeah.
5: So I, um, I got the opportunity. I was offered uh, the possibility of moving to Mississippi, which is something I would have never guessed that would happen in my life. <laughs> And um, we are currently building a new aquarium called the Mississippi Aquarium, and it's on the Gulf Coast of Mississippi. So um, Mississippi has a small strip of land that has some beaches. It's going to be in the city of Gulfport, which is right next to Biloxi. And it is currently under construction. It's progressed a fair amount. It's progressed pretty much... Okay, hold on. Let's say it's progressed to being almost complete. We're currently working on getting the life support system. So all the water and filtration set for all of our animals and um, it will be opening later this year.
1: Oh, that sounds amazing. All right. And yeah. So what are you guys doing with all those? Uh, so do you have like all these tons of fish and everything somewhere? Or do you, Are you keeping all these fish at your home? You know, like, <laughs>
5: <laughs> Absolutely not at my I don't have, Um, no, they're they're too big and too many. So we have have some fish here. Um, The fish kind of come from all over. So they may Mm -hmm. come from fish suppliers or they may come from other zoos and aquariums. And we have several holding pools here in Mississippi. And currently those fish are here and undergoing quarantine to make sure they're healthy before they get introduced into their new home at Mississippi Aquarium. And then we have other um, fish and animals at various other zoos and aquariums or other holding institutions. Then they're just waiting for us to be ready to accept the animals um, before we take them in and give them their new home at Mississippi Aquarium. So we kind of have them in very, we have them in a lot of different places. I was just making a spreadsheet yesterday to keep track of where we have
1: nice.
5: and what everybody needs when they come. So mm-hmm. yeah, we're, we're collecting we're collecting all of our animals together from various different sources. <laughs> nice.
1: So do you, have, do you have like your own fish pets at home?
5: I do not currently have my own fish pets. I used to have some, and I really loved it, um, watching all the fish. But right now, you know, we, we have a lot going on with two young kids, and I don't <laughs> I could give them the proper care they
1: need, so I just enjoy them at work. Well, yeah, but you you definitely will have enough of them at at work. You know, I always wanted to ask you about this because I I just feel um, it's it's obvious to me, um, but there's been quite a debate from, I don't know, a lot of people that feel like that fish don't feel pain, okay? Uh, Why do you think people believe, why do some people believe that fish don't feel pain? Why do you think that's a thing?
5: I think so. I think that it's difficult to relate to fish sometimes on the same level that you would relate to like your dog or cat because fish generally don't come over and ask you to pet them or anything like that. So they, you know, they're not fuzzy um, and they're a little bit more standoffish than your average pet. <laughs> yeah.
1: But
5: And they don't, you know, they don't have the same characteristics. So if you If you see a dog wagging its tail and jumping up and down and, you know, barking happily, you kind of know what, you know that dog seems to be having a good time. And fish behavior might be a little bit more subtle because they're in the water. They can't come out. You can't really touch them except for we do have, you know, touch-pull experiences for people to get closer to fish. But generally, you don't touch them or take them for walks. And so I think it's just probably a matter of them not understanding fish behavior and being able to read their cues as they can dogs or cats.
1: Yeah. And is that kind of how you explain it to them as far as like, you know, comparing them to dogs and cats?
5: Yeah. I mean, I try to explain it based on who I'm talking to. If they have a uh, experience with a certain animal, I kind of try to relate it. And mm-hmm. obviously that's my opinion. I'm just guessing, but I, as, as you get to know fish, um, you can start to see individual personalities come out and individual fish. And so you become better at reading their mannerisms and learning more about them. Yeah. Obviously you never know exactly what's in their head, but you can just do your best guess.
1: <laughs> Excellent. Absolutely. And so like why, or do you feel that it's important for people to know that fish feel pain?
5: Yeah, I think, you know, there have been a lot of studies Um questioning whether or not fish feel pain because it is a it is a question and I sometimes the information can be a little bit conflicting but over the past few years there have been studies that do show fish so uh, fish show signs of discomfort if they're given a stimulus that is not pleasant like they may twitch their fins in a little bit different way or they may Mm -hmm breathing heavier or they may seek out a different location in their in their house so I think it's really important that we think about all creatures and make sure we're giving them the best care and obviously that includes taking care of any pain that they may have so um, you know it's my job I'm an I'm the aquatic vet and so I'm always gonna try to err on the side of making my patients feel better
1: I, I agree. And so that's, I, I, yeah, cause that's exactly why I want people to understand. Cause I think if people understand that people that fish feel pain, I do, I do, I feel like they're going to, it's going to improve then their, the welfare, especially if they're taking care of these fish, but also again, like the health and, and malnutrition and, and just disease. And so again, they'll just have a better understanding that'll be yeah, I I agree. I think that'd be more people know and understand. Again, these things get taken care of way better. And so, um, what what is aquaculture, and are there different types and levels um, of aquaculture?
5: Yeah, so aquaculture is kind of like um, farming for fish. So some people do call it a fish farm. So there are different ways to aquaculture. One is you can have a, um, you can have different ponds in the ground outside if you live in a place that the environment allows for that and you can grow fish up from tiny little fish to bigger fish and sell them for food or some places sell them to aquarians as well um there is some aquaculture that goes on out in the middle of the ocean like in sea pens um like in the um in different countries for sure that have bigger areas offshore um I've seen them in Chile, which was awesome to see. And then there's aquaculture kind of more in laboratories and that's where they're growing up little little fish for the aquarium industry. So for pets, for people to buy from pet stores or from big aquariums to purchase to put in their exhibits. Um, so there's different kinds depending on which type of fish you want to grow up. And there's a recent big push in aquariums to learn how to rear the fish that we need for aquariums so that we are sure that we're not taking any fish from the wild. Um, So a lot of different laboratories are working on raising up specific kinds of fish like, you know, when... um, when that Disney movie came out, everybody wanted a clownfish. So. Oh,
1: Finding Nemo! All right. <laughs> many times, watched it
5: many times. Started growing those uh, <laughs> clownfish because they became really popular, and um, and now you can see them. You know, you can see them in pet stores all over the place. So, <laughs> so yeah, there's different kinds of aquaculture depending on what kind of fish you're trying to raise.
1: Very cool. And I know we've kind of touched on this a little bit, but why is it important for fish? You feel like to be treated, um, obviously humanely during the aquaculture process and at, and obviously at aquariums. And how is this aquaculture better environmentally?
5: So aquaculture can be, you know, you have to do everything responsibly, you know, just like farming, there are ways to, um, just like in farming, you have to raise up um, cows or chickens. We want to do that in a way that is Um, positive to the cows and chickens, even though they're gonna end up as food, we still want them to have a good life until they end up as food. So Mm -hmm. that's the same principle we need to use for fish in my opinion. You want them to have good health care, good water quality, good food until they are they serve as food themselves. And then obviously in an aquarium that's their home. They're never gonna move from there. That they're gonna live there forever and we need to take really good care of them so we um we test water quality all the time to make sure it's exactly how it needs to be the fish in aquariums tend to be fed really well sometimes our problems in aquarium are more like they get they get obese sometimes they get Mm -hmm. they get too big because they're fed too well yeah so we need to we just always need to make sure that we're doing better and Sometimes it's hard with fish and other smaller animals like reptiles because we don't know exactly everything. Let me say that again. Sometimes it's harder with little fish and reptiles just because their lives are a little bit more um, unique and they have different characteristics and different needs than a dog or a cat. And so you have to be very in tune with the species that you have to make sure you're giving them everything they need to thrive.
1: Awesome awesome how would you um how would you then define the like uh, aquatic animal welfare uh, to someone?
5: So aquatic animal welfare, I would say fortunately is becoming a big issue, which is great because we're raising awareness, and people are becoming more and more aware. so it's welfare in general for animals can be applied to fish, but in aquatic animal welfare. Um, You know, you need, obviously you need shelter, you need food, you need um, enrichment. And so welfare is just giving them everything they need to not only survive, but to thrive. So people more and more are thinking about rather than just feeding the fish and keeping the exhibit clean, they're thinking of ways, how can we enrich this fish's life? So they will like teach a fish to do little mazes, or they may teach a fish to come over to a certain station to feed, and they may give it different places to hide and different substrates to try out. So it's just enriching their lives as much as possible to make it a very enjoyable place to live.
1: Very cool. Um, And as far as you know, this uh, aquaculture animal welfare—what drives like regulations, and you know, or what kind of do you have at the aquarium are put into place um, to meet like certain standards of care.
5: Okay, so with aquaculture and fish raised for um, food, there Mm -hmm. are regulations. The same with there are regulations placed by the government for how you handle um, animals that will become food. Like there are regulations about which kind of drugs you can use and how you get them ready to be food. Um, So the government regulates that quite a bit. And there are certain, um, you have to write health certificates and stuff when you want to transport the fish around. And then uh, in, in aquariums, most of them are having, Um, are creating welfare committees right now. And so the welfare committee usually consists of someone from the animal care staff, like a husbandry person, and then a veterinary aspect, and then various other people, depending on the institution. And those people come together and look at each animal and look at the habitats, and they kind of rate that they rate everything like the diet, the habitat, the enrichment, and you evaluate to make sure that you're giving the animal the best care and you kind of reevaluate every year. Or if a concern comes up, you'll evaluate it and make changes to address the concern.
1: Very cool. So are there regulations that you feel should be in place or maybe some legislation that should be put into place um, for, you know, a, as far as animal welfare or standards of care for, um, for aquariums that meet that maybe are not there just yet?
5: Um, yeah, I think that the aquarium industry is um, doing a really good job working toward that. So there is a um, there is an organization called American Humane, and then there's the Association for Zoos and Aquariums. And all of these institutions are always pushing to make sure that zoos and aquariums meet um, meet standards and then they always inspire the aquariums and zoos to push harder to exceed the standards. So people from all areas of zoo and aquatic medicine, veterinarians and keepers and um, people higher up they all get together and create minimum standards. I think that fish welfare is lagging a little bit behind. Like the mammals always come first; um, they're the most—they're the things that people see and relate to the most. But slowly but surely, I've—I mean, I've been in this field about eight years now, and from the time I started till now, we've made great strides in including our little fish friends and reptiles and birds and all of these welfare standards. So we're moving we're moving toward um, the same kind of criteria that we're using for mammals. And we just, in my opinion, we just need to address each animal species um, individually, because obviously, you cannot provide the same standards, nor should you for a fish that you would, like a dolphin, because they have completely different requirements. So I think Doing blanket statements about what you should do is probably not helpful, but focusing on the individual species and making sure you're doing everything that that species needs is a good thing.
1: Awesome, awesome. So, what do you think is our like our moral obligation to consider um, for fish welfare?
5: Our moral obligation. Let's see. <laughs> um, I mean, so my moral obligation is probably different than someone else's because. I feel as a veterinarian and as, you know, the head of the department at Mississippi Aquarium, I feel it's my job to advocate for all of the animals, little or big. Um, So I feel like it's my moral and it's actually my job to do that. Um, I wouldn't say that I think, you know, you for example should have to <laughs> have to care about every little fish because i know that's not realistic but in general my hope is that people care about animals overall and try to advocate for them as best they can
1: absolutely absolutely so Alex, we i hey, obviously my you and i we have these kids okay and they're <laughs> always wanting animals all right and so my kids would like all right to have you know this big aquarium all right so I don't think I'm going to do that necessarily, but I do, again, I want them to have, all right, I, I want them to have fish. What, what are, the, what's the best aquatic pet, you know, pet for like a family or for young kids to, to have so I can help teach them, you know?
5: Yeah. Okay. I think the best aquatic pet is not just one aquatic pet. I think, what, <laughs> I think what you have to do is each family has to evaluate their lifestyle, yeah. their their level of commitment, maybe the kids' ages, and do research. So like your kids, your twins, they do research into the animals they want to get, and they need to tell you what they require for food, what they require, how to live, what temperature, do they need a heat lamp, do they need salt water or fresh water. They They need to research all of that stuff, and then they need to... Um, come to you with like a report basically telling you what's involved because nice. let's have, you're going to be involved in taking care of these animals.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we always end up taking care of them right now. All right.
5: So I think the most important thing when getting an aquatic animal pet is to do research beforehand and know that it's you probably won't be able to just buy an aquarium fill it with water and put fish in you need to have time for the aquarium to cycle and get the nitrogen cycle going and get all the water conditions so that the fish can live in it happily and healthily nice not one animal but you got to do your research
1: (laughs) why do you feel like uh aquatic pets are good do you think they're good teaching teaching tools for children
5: yeah, I think they're amazing for teaching children. Um, for one, they're pretty calming. If you've ever sat in front of an aquarium and just watched fish swim around, as long as you're not the veterinarian for those fish, it's usually pretty calming. <laughs>
1: yeah.
5: <laughs> because it's, it's so peaceful to watch them swim around, and it's just they have all these colors, and they do all these fun little things. So I think they're great. They can be great, great pets. Um But you just, you know, you just have to do your research.
1: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And so um, is there any other good rules of thumb to follow when caring for fish, you know, in a family?
5: Um, Okay, so definitely do your research. I know I'm a broken record. And um, make sure you give yourself enough time to get your tank set up and cycled. And then read up on the natural history. So you might not necessarily just want to feed it like a fish food you might want to give it a diverse diet like you might want to get little shrimp or other things to feed the fish you might want to provide it different um, habitats to hide and swim around and and you can also read up there's a you can train certain fish so i've seen people on the internet train their goldfish to swim through a little hoop or something and, <laughs> <Nice. yeah. laughs> nice. yeah. Many many fish in aquariums that people visit are trained to station at a certain place to get fed, and some are getting trained to like flip over so that you can do an ultrasound without having to restrain them at all. So you can train fish just like you can train any other animal. So I think it's kind of cool to know that you can do that for an animal that's a little bit less traditional.
1: Oh, that's amazing! Because you're you're absolutely right. I mean, we see that a lot at the at the aquariums when they do the shows, and we see how we can teach them. But I don't think that f really that actually ever like that transition or that thought is made from pet owners that they think they could do that with their pet with their pet fish. And that's amazing because yeah. you're absolutely right. They can be trained.
5: A lot of times, people think of fish as low maintenance pets, and they can probably be low maintenance if you get them on a good schedule, but. You're, you're always going to need to do water changes. You can't just set up a tank and never change the water because you need to change the water to get out the old water and to get out all of the nitrogen buildup and everything. You can't just keep adding water, adding water, adding water. There's something called old tank syndrome that if you just add water and never take it away, then your chemistry of your water changes and it's not healthy for your fish. So it can be it can be low maintenance but i mean true if you if you see people with like big big home aquariums with corals and stuff those people are intense they set up cameras to watch it when they're gone i mean it's just like having nice. a dog or a puppy <laughs> yeah
0: they
5: set up cameras they set up automated lights there's heater backups in case something goes out so it's pretty it, it's labor intensive
1: nice so again when when my twins were young, right, we had, because uh, they, they wanted desperately to have two fish, all right? And so when they were young, we had two beta fish uh, that we kept on the coffee table you know, at eye level so the boys could watch them. Uh, again, they were also you know at the age where they'd express themselves, um, like express their excitement you know, about the fish by banging on the table, okay? Did we accidentally subject, all right, these poor fish to months and months of pure pain and torture? <laughs>
5: Well, I'm not going to say pure pain and torture because that would be anthropomorphizing. <laughs> but they probably did experience a little stress, especially from the vibrations, I would oh, 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 no. Oh, no. It actually has been shown that fish that are housed like next to a pump that's really vibrates a lot, they do show more signs of stress than a fish who's away in a more quiet area. Good but some fish are much more sensitive than others. So your fish may have been fine, but... That's not the environment I would necessarily recommend. (laughs)
1: Uh, Noted. Okay. Alexa, noted. I will do better. I promise. All right. Next time, because the the boys are are definitely, they're asking for a lot more animals. All right. And you know, it gets a little tough Uh, again, Alexa, you are having such an amazing career. All right. Mm -hmm. You are someone who has done everything you are having. Again, just, you have an amazing family, beautiful children, and just again, an inspiring career. You've worked so hard. Hard to get where you are and I know that it's only gonna get more incredible from here I am just so thankful you were able to share okay right, for the first part uh, of our veterinary school career together all right uh, <laughs> you put positivity and good into this world Uh, and again, and we are all the better for it again. I love you to death. All right. My babies love you to death. Uh, again, you're just an amazing person an amazing veterinarian. And I can't thank you enough for doing this today and helping my viewers understand again about fish. Cause you know, again, people have them. All right. A lot of my clients have them. They ask me and I'm like, you got to talk to, uh, you know, I say Dr. McDermott, but Dr. DeLon. (laughs) Okay. Thank you so much for being here, Alex. I appreciate it.
5: Of course, it was my pleasure. I love you and I love your family. And I think you guys should all come visit Mississippi Aquarium when it opens and I'll give you a tour. And I think you should study fish medicine and I can give you a crash course and you can help your clients.
1: Oh, we're gonna have to do that. All right, we're gonna do that. That's gonna be another show. Okay, the next one. All right, Dr. Dillon, thank you so much. We love you. Love you too, bye. When we get back, I will reveal my product of the week. Stick around.
0: The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund is a 501c3 organization created by Dr. Mondrian Contreras. Dr. Contreras had twin boys early in his vet school education. He often had to study with his children, which led to their love for animals and desire to help educate others about pets. The Vet Bros Pet Education Charitable Fund stems from this love of animals and education. The VetPro's Pet Education Charitable Fund's mission is to help educate children and young adults about how to best care for their pets and to help them fulfill their dreams of becoming veterinarians, animal advocates, and animal healthcare professionals. This organization helps provide scholarship money as well as educational seminars to help individuals realize their dreams. The VetPro's Pet Education Charitable Fund also provides financial assistance towards health care for pets in families experiencing various hardships such as bankruptcy and unemployment or natural disasters such as flooding, tornado, or fire. Please visit our website, vetbrospeteducation.org, and consider making a donation to our cause.
1: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time, the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts. Voiceamerica.com.
0: You are tuned into Healthy Tales with Dr. Mondrian Contreras. We'd love to hear from you on our program today. Please call in to 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com. Now back to Healthy Tales.
1: Welcome back to Healthy Tales. It's time for our product of the week. Summer's in the air, and as things start to open up again from this pandemic, people are going to start traveling with their pets more and more. According to a AAA report, 90% of US pet owners travel with their pets. I talk to pet owners all the time who love taking their dogs on amazing road trips and going on hikes and going to beautiful lakes to swim or just relax on a boat. They are a part of our family and we love adventuring with and creating amazing memories with our beloved fur babies. But all this car traveling with our pets can potentially put us all in dangerous situations. Pets can be very distracting in the car. They can get extremely riled up, jumping back and forth from the front seat to the back seat, excessive barking when they see something they want, and they can even get under your feet, inhibiting your ability to drive safely. Luckily, this can all be prevented with our product of the week, the dog seatbelt. Dogs can be a huge liability due to their ability to distract when driving. Dogs can see a squirrel or a skunk when you're driving, and they have no issue with jumping out of your moving car, usually earning themselves some road rash or a broken bone rather than an actual squirrel or skunk. We can very easily be distracted with our dogs or other things while we drive, which makes sudden abrupt stops or collisions more likely. In a collision, dogs become a life-threatening projectile. What's even more concerning is that even a 10-pound dog in your car Traveling at 30 miles per hour can exert 300 pounds of force during a crash. While there are many seatbelt options on the market, not all dog seatbelts are created equal. Dog seatbelt manufacturers are not required to crash test their products. So the ones that do crash test their product are the ones I prefer. Never use a neck collar for a seatbelt attachment. I hope this is obvious as it will act like a noose in the event of a crash. Always use a harness seatbelt as the forces are dispersed throughout the body. The goal of the harness is to maintain the dog's stability, restrain movement, stabilize the dog's spine, and limit rotation during an accident. Dog seat belts should be used every time our pets get into the car with us. Traveling with our pets allows us to spend more time with the pets we love and creating lasting memories. Let's make sure we keep our pets safe so we can create years and years of fun traveling adventures. Thank you so much for joining us today. Special thanks to my amazing co-hosts, Elaine, Kyle, and Tim, and to my expert guests, Dr. Alexa Delon. I want to thank you, our amazing listeners, for your support, and please continue to give us feedback at vetbrospeteducationcf at gmail.com or rate us on iTunes. We hope you join us for our next episode where we give you more great tips and help you unleash your pet parenting power.
0: Thank you for listening to Healthy Tales. Please join your host, Dr. Mondrian Contreras, for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 6 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's wishing better health for you and your pet.